Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today we'll chat with Remington Tonar. Over the past two years, I've been on this, I would say, learning journey, and it's been invigorating and inspiring. And I wanted to talk to Rem about what what does the future of learning look like? I'm really interested in that. And uh, so we had a really excellent discussion, and I'm excited to share this with you. You can follow Remington at Remington Tonar. Let's begin. All right, so Rem, the reason why I want you on today is I've been thinking about the future of learning and formal education because over the last two years, I've just been following my curiosity and I've seen this personal growth within myself that's just on this like steep incline. And and I'm wondering too about with the coronavirus pandemic affecting the globe and schools having to adjust and do learning online and it's, it's disrupting a lot of educational um, models. What does it look like moving forward in the 21st century? Yeah, well, this is a great topic and a lot of people are talking about it. And uh, Rich, as you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time in various schools and, and universities, Yeah, uh, probably more than most. And uh, I have in my past life as a consultant worked with a number of top tier uh, universities and colleges as well as testing organizations and other uh, companies and nonprofits that uh, are in the education uh, sector. Uh, so I, I've thought about these topics a lot. And what I'd say is, first of all, the changes that are happening in education now are not new. They've been happening. COVID has just accelerated them, right? Like MOOCs have been around now for years, massively online open courses, right? And uh, online learning has been increasing in popularity for, for many years. Uh, and even before COVID, a lot of uh, colleges and schools were putting uh, entire curricula online. Uh, University of Illinois, for example, put its entire MBA curriculum online for free. Um, and many others have been offering online executive and continuing education courses. So the, uh, the digitalization or the digitization of uh, higher education in particular has been a trend that um, you know, has been uh, underway in transforming and challenging traditional models of education for some time. Uh, and and the the origin of that is really, uh, you know, like everything, the, the disruption caused by technology, in this case, the ability of the Internet to make knowledge and content and information accessible globally for free or, or for cheap. Uh, and uh, in the world we live in today, knowledge and content is really a commodity, right? Uh, yes, content yeah. is king, but it's also commoditized. There's a lot of content out there and you can get uh educational content uh on wikipedia and other types of courses there's all these like online courses now um and you know people who have gone through like say um you know any any program or a course of education that isn't licensed right so you can't get online and, and teach a medical school program because it's regulated right and right. accounting you know it's a, to some degree accounting um uh in law certainly uh, but you know for unregulated 
uh, areas uh, or subject matters, um, you know, all that content is readily available. The one that is is being disrupted that is top of mind today is the MBA, the Masters of Business Administration. Uh, that is uh, unregulated. There's no licenses or certification required to practice business. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that knowledge is now more commoditized. So you see all these articles about how the starting salary for MBAs is, is declining, just as it did for lawyers, right? Uh, lawyers used to be, and before that, accountants, right? So uh, the the global economy goes through these cycles where the the skills necessary to succeed change, uh, and people who have those skills through their education are advantaged. But then everybody else runs to get a JD or get an MBA. But at that point, it's a commodity, uh, and as more people obtain that degree, the less valuable it becomes. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. Yeah. Supply and demand. So, so that's what's happening with a lot of a lot of these degrees. Other degrees, um, you know, such as theology, for example, just aren't very practical. You can't really use those degrees. Um, so, you know, they're not even if they're only in moderate supply, they're also in extremely low demand. Uh, so the uh, so, so overall, you know, all of these these trends have been impacting education. Uh, broadly speaking, for some time. And now with COVID, it's forced laggard universities to try and catch up. So universities that have been behind the trend are now being forced to say, oh, we got to get online. We got to do all this stuff. Um, I think what's going to be really challenging, though, for some of these universities is, okay, when all the content is online mm-hmm. and a top tier university can now open its curriculum or its, its uh, you know, certain programs up to a broader audience, how are the the middle tier, the second tier universities, for example, going to compete? Because a lot of them compete on, you know, campus experience or, you know, high touch of their faculty or, you know, a really yeah. robust career center. Well, those are the things that you can't really take as um, as good advantage of if you're remote. Right. Right. Um, so why wouldn't you want, you know, Harvard on your degree if it's remote versus some school down the street? Well, you know, you're going to choose Harvard. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I'm concerned about the viability. Well, maybe not concerned. Uh, maybe it's a good thing. Uh, but the viability of the second tier universities is going to be interesting to see because um, I think a lot of them will will end up um, suffering because of this because uh, they haven't been able to adapt and so they're not ahead of, the, ahead of the trend and they don't have as much to offer in a purely content commoditized world what about the idea of um like industrial uh, what do you call that like complexes where they're just trying to like build more buildings to attract and recruit students for tuition so the tuition is super high and if now we're remote learning and you can go learn from Harvard rather than the school down the street. Like how can you charge that tuition and this like industrial complex with all these universities trying to compete against each other? And it's like, wait a minute, isn't yeah, it's the like point a point of higher education supposed to be like learning rather than like all these other accessory things. Well, there is a campus industrial complex, right? Where, yeah. where it's like you have to have the coolest campus. Your your rec center, number one is the rec center. Your rec center has to be, these days, has to be out of this world. You know, you have to have pools and rock climbing walls and, and those, um, you know, where you uh, – the skydiving tunnels, you know, where you can There's go skydiving tunnels. tunnels yeah, it is, it, so I, you know, it's like this is this is the level of competitiveness some of these schools are getting to now. And then of course, you know, your library has to be top notch, and your classrooms have to have all the technology and gadgets and gizmos. And um, so, so yes, I mean, there, you know, and, and now like being able to like book a study room on your phone and then like scan in, uh, you know, that's standard now. So uh, you know, these these campuses are definitely getting more sophisticated and people are spending more on them because look it's uh it's kind of uh the 
theme park it's like a theme park play, right? You you want the experience to be immersive and, yeah. and for people to feel like they're in a different world. Uh, and, and, and this is like, you know, the idea of kind of ivy hedgerows and, you know, the ivory tower. Uh, the nature of academia has always been uh, or has always always kind of. Uh, tended to shut itself off from the outside world, to close itself off, to yeah. to try and isolate itself. Uh, and so, you know, if you're one of these universities that thinks very highly of itself, which most do, the uh, the best thing for you is to kind of bring your students in and then like keep them in a bubble, right? Because then they're in your right. bubble. Uh, yeah. and, and that's how you how, that's how you control the educational experience. That's why I've personally, Rich, as you know, I've I've always. Uh, uh, liked universities and attended universities that are woven into the fiber of their cities, right? Yeah, why uh, don't you uh, elaborate on your, your educational background? Uh, so my undergraduate degree is uh, from Marquette University, which is a, a Catholic Jesuit private institution in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, that is a, a kind of just in the middle of the city and, you know, you walk down the street and it's mostly yeah. uni- buildings belonging to the university, but there's also buildings uh, around that don't belong to the university and office buildings and apartment buildings and homeless people and, and the whole, the whole bit. Uh, and then uh, I have a master's degree from Loyola university, Chicago, which is in Chicago. They do have a little bit of a campus, but it bleeds very, uh, very quickly into the surrounding neighborhood, which is not, which is, not an upper income neighborhood, uh, to, to put it mildly. Uh, and, uh, and then they have a downtown campus, which is right in the heart of, of, of downtown Chicago on Michigan Avenue. Uh, and then, uh, I have another master's degree from New York university. And for those of you who know NYU, the greatest school on earth, the, uh, <laughs> Uh, it is, it is very much, uh, uh, part of in and of the city. It's, uh, you know, it's buildings are scattered around the city. Most of them are in Washington square park, but, uh, you know, there's tourists walking through and, uh, other stores and shops and offices. And, and, um, you know, it's hard to call what NYU has a, a campus there in New York. And then also I'm, I'm ABD or all but dissertation. Um, hopefully I'll get my PhD dissertation done at some point uh, at the University of Aberdeen, which does have a campus, a very gorgeous campus in Scotland, uh, very old, very historic, fantastic library, very modern. Um, and they've been able to, but, but see, that's a little different because most of what they have, most of the magic a- on campus at Aberdeen wasn't built recently. It's very, it's ancient, right? It's very right, old yeah. and, and, the, and it has a Harry Potter type of feel to it. Um, which is, you know, obviously a, a characteristic of many uh, English, but European universities. But, uh, but yeah. And then uh, as clients, you know, I've worked with NYU, MIT, uh, Oklahoma State, a bunch of other uh, schools, big and small around the globe, um, and some of the testing organizations as well. People don't realize that college testing is a is a big industry. And most of the ETS and College Board, which are the two main ones that own the ACT and SAT, are nonprofits, but, uh, you know, they make billions of dollars a year on testing. Uh, and tests historically, of course, have pretty much determined what schools you get to go to. So if you're, you know, the nonprofits like those folks have a, have tremendous power. They have tremendous power to determine who goes where. And, you know, there's been many studies and, and criticisms levied against them that, you know, they're, they're just the nature of their questions are somewhat biased. Uh, and actually do have like regressive effects. You know, it's like if you if you grew up in a, a, you know, a certain type of community, there are certain things that might not make sense to you and how the question is phrased and stuff like that. Like, like it's it's not um it's not equitable, certainly. Mm. Um, and it's big. It's big money. 
uh, and it has a disproportional impact on on who gets to go where, which is why I'm very happy that many schools now, including the Ivy Leagues, are abandoning standardized tests for college admission. Um, that that's been a long time coming. And uh, I hated the standardized tests. Nobody I, likes standardized. Oh my gosh. If you, I'm going to say something, it's going to offend people, but I'm going to say it anyway. And it and it could be offensive to to many friends of mine. You know, I know a lot of people who who are very successful and and have uh, gone through Harvard and Yale and uh, schools of that caliber, Princeton, etc. And um, but you know, and they're all great test takers. <laughs> Uh, but, but, but a lot of them end up in, you know, big corporate jobs, uh, very predictable, um, rather boring, pay well, very respectable. Um, but, uh, you know, not the, you know, not the, the type of, uh, companies that uh, I think a lot of people who hate standardized, standardized tests because of what they represent, um, you know, I think those folks are, are more likely to be more creative, more out of the box thinkers, rule breakers, divergence, people who don't want to be confined to or don't want to be judged based on like a t- couple hour test, you know, but want to be judged as a holistic individual, not just, you know, based on on multiple choice questions. Right. Yeah. I've been uh, kind of taking this this different educational approach than what I have in the past, the last two years, where I just start reading one book a week and then accumulate. I think of it as ammo. Like each book is just ammo and I just keep arming well, myself. Well, Rich, you're and now I just a, use it on life, you know? You're, you're now an autodidact, right? That's that's a large word. What is it? Yeah, autodidact, which means self-taught. Yeah, 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 yeah I've been yeah, using yeah, like, that. Like some, someone who's autodidactic is someone who's, you know, kind of taught themselves a lot of things and uh the uh you know anyone anyone who kind of just accumulates knowledge for the whether it's for the sake of accumulating knowledge or for the sake of like using it as ammunition uh you know is is certainly in that autodidact bucket and and i and the autodidacts are a little different than like armchair learners right the armchair learner uh is kind of a tourist you know like Uh, i think uh, i know a lot of smart people but I'm baffled that they don't use their their knowledge more than they do. It's almost like they just gather this knowledge just to use it and then at times be the well actually guy. Yeah, know, the, the, the actually guy. Yeah, yeah. Now now like know something about about this or that that's so random and it's like spending all this effort to learn about all this stuff and then never like applying it in a way that's well, useful people, people don't think society. of knowledge people don't think i i really believe you know knowledge is power people don't think of knowledge as an asset they think of it as something that they think of it in a utilitarian per, uh, kind of way where i've accumulated this knowledge and uh, i'm just going to keep it in in the warehouse and then as it's called out i will deploy it rather than right the approach you and i take is no 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 we're going to see what's in the warehouse. We're going to go and get it and we're going to roll it out and deploy yeah. it. You know, we're like, we're, we're going to make the market. You know, we're not going to respond to the market. We're going to make the market. I'm, right. I'm going to force knowledge into the world, right. not just wait for the world to call my knowledge out. That's the difference. So then what I think is so valuable now, we're talking about having all this information online and all these um, sources to learn knowledge and educate yourself online is one of the most important things having a great internet connection and access to all these these tools then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who's going to the library and checking out books? 
You know, it's like in the time it takes you to go to the library, I could have read like 50 articles online and, you know, uh, have accumulated most of the points you're going to remember from those books. Right. Uh, yeah. so having an internet, great internet connection is, is really important. And, but this is also, a, um, a danger for society. And one of the causes of, of some of the inequalities we see, I mean, there are people out there who either cannot afford or do not have access to good, good internet, right? Good broadband, uh, rural communities, for example, there are tens of millions of Americans without any broadband, uh, you know, kind of high speed internet access at all. Still today, they live in inner cities and they live in rural America. Uh, and, and that is unacceptable. At what point do we have to say, and, you know, there have been bills in Congress to this effect that, you know, internet is, is like water. It's a, it's a fundamental utility that needs yeah. to be provided. Um, I know, I don't think the government should be providing that utility, but I think it should be mandated that it be provided by somebody. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because the internet is, you know, telephones, utility, well, who, no one uses that thing anymore. Right. So, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you're kind of landline. I mean, your cell phone, it's all, it's all, it's essentially the internet, right? So the, uh, it's all the same thing. It's all radio frequency, but, um, all the wireless is, is RF. Um, and then, you know, in most of the, you know, until you get to the, to the tier one telecom providers, which actually own big pipe, you know, most of it now is just RF, but the, um, and with 5G coming, that's going to be a disruptor. But but yeah, we need to do better uh, making sure people have good internet access. But also, on top of that, even if they have internet access, doesn't mean they're going to be able to use it. I know a lot of people who still can't find, you know, basic information on Google because they don't, you know, know how to search for things uh, or how to modify their search to to find what they're looking for. Or people who, you know, can't identify fake information, fake news um, from from the, the the genuine article, right? So I saw this uh, I saw this tweet. Where it was like the wealth inequality will be between the people under the 20th century model and the people that have figured out how to use the internet. Yeah. Well, can you imagine if you're not well, if you're not using the internet either to accumulate knowledge or make money, right, in some capacity or, or conduct business, um, you know, you're you're just not going to make it. Imagine a plumber who isn't accessible online. If I can't yeah. find you online, right, like as a plumber, you're going to get no yeah. clients. None. Right. Yeah, it's so tough. And then, and at the at the beginning, teaching children and teaching individuals how to how to access this stuff too, and media literacy, it's so important moving forward. Media literacy is very important, kind of being able to navigate the internet. But I mean, the other problem is that like the the technology is moving so quickly. By the time the kids that are in school now and grade school now grow up, the technology is going to look very different, right? Very different. So. Um, so in education, is there, I mean, I'm not in the educational, um, sector, but you see everything technology evolving so quickly that by the time someone starts kindergarten and goes to college or whatever they choose to do, all that stuff they've been taught is out of date. It's so gone. It's more so yeah. like skills. We skills, need to teach, we need to, we need to teach people, or, how, we need to teach people how to learn. Right. Yeah. Like that's the most important thing. Right. This is the objective of philosophy. Ultimately, you know, the love of which literally means the love of wisdom. Like we people need to learn how to learn. They need to understand how to uh, gather information, use that information to their advantage, assimilate that information into their worldview, change their worldview when necessary, deploy that knowledge uh, and, and the, those belief systems uh, as is necessary and do it again and again and again and keep doing it their whole lives. Right. We need to teach people how to be mentally 
mentally, cognitively, intellectually flexible and adaptive and anti-fragile uh, and, and how to and teach people, uh, you know, really how they can use their cognitive capacities, whatever level they may be at, as an asset uh, rather than simply kind of going through the, the motions and, and volunteering information only when necessary and, and using that knowledge only when necessary. They need to use it to take control of their destiny, to be agents in their own story, right, rather than just be receivers of, of what other people, you know, the world that other people are creating for them. Do you feel there's a sentiment in America of older individuals, older Americans, that the world is just it's going so quickly and it's changing and there's a fear that they're getting left behind and I don't think it's old. I mean, the baby boomers now don't care. They're, they're, you know, they're, on, they're on their way out. They're like, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not gonna make a difference to them. Uh, I, first of all, I don't know if it's an age thing. I've seen younger people express that sentiment as well, but I do think that that is acute in, or has been, or has historically been acute in Generation X, um, because they, they kind of fell in the gap. They remember the dot com boom. Maybe some of them got burned by the dot com boom. Um, but it, and, but they, they weren't digitally native. So, um, you know, they, they don't have the same kind of natural mastery of some of these technologies that folks our age do. Um, so I see that in Generation X a lot. And, and those are the people who are now kind of middle managers just going through the motions. And uh, there's a lot of those folks out there. But, you know, the nice thing is they've done enough by now in their career where they now have an army of younger people to help them with that stuff. Right. Um, you know, at some point, the young people should just stop helping them and we'll see what happens to them. They'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll flame out real quick. Rich, how do I print this? <laughs> I was like, Rich, I, yeah, I, I had this reaction just now. I was like. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, right? You know, it's like, how do I print this? You're like, uh, Rich, I, I erased something. How do I get it back? You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, my computer won't turn on type of thing. Yeah. Even I, I feel like part of me too, it's like hard to keep up with. I guess that's more social you're, you're, Look, you're, Yeah, but you're already behind, right? I mean, the technologies that yeah. are going to transform tomorrow. I mean, like people are like, I don't know, what, what's a technology that you hear about now? Like, what, what, name, like, name, name a cutting-edge technology. Like a 3D printing. Okay, three. That's old. That's that's like old hat, right? Okay, what replace that? What's well, well, well. So 3D printing is old. I mean, there are 3D additive printed parts in you know air in jet engines now. Like there there are yeah. a couple of air of commercial airplane models that have engines have jets with 3d printed components to them right i mean like that we're already using 3d printing commercially you know so it's yeah. like if, if you think that so this is not, not, yeah, yeah, it's certainly not new then yeah it's yeah. it's uh you know it's uh forget about it but now there's you know quantum computing right and most people haven't even heard of quantum computing but if you haven't heard of quantum computing and you're worried about the future you got to learn about it because it's going to eat everything like this is this is the thing you quantum know? computing yeah quantum computing so is that is the that impact, like the AI impact, no, so the, okay. this is, well, if it, well, it's when you put, if you, if you were to put AI and quantum computing together, that's when you'd get like Skynet, Terminator, you know, matrix okay. type of stuff, uh, hypothetically, but, um, but quantum computing, the impact quantum computing is going to have on society is, is going to be similar to what the internet did for society. It's going to be that, that extreme. So what so is it? Quantum, quantum computing. So right now computing, conventional computing is transistor based, right? So you have these transistors that store uh, electrons, that store electricity basically, and the storage of kind of uh, electrons on a circuit board, for example, uh, in these transistors 
uh, are uh, what allows us to kind of code information. And and on your chipset in your phone or on your computer, there's you know just millions of these things, these these little these gates in there that are that are storing electrons. And um, so that's in silicon, you know, silicon wafers, and and this is how we we kind of construct modern computers. Um, and we and then we're able to use binary, right? Because so on a CD, most people don't even know how CDs work. Remember CDs? Like we don't we don't have those anymore. But yeah. but the CD was actually extremely like archaic it was just uh from from day one it was it was barbaric because all you were doing was ru- like the the laser remember the lasers right the and yeah. you remember you could burn a cd you can burn a disc oh yeah right? well you know why they called it burning because you would burn the zeros and ones hole no hole hole no hole 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 no hole no yeah. no hole, hole right like that's binary zero one zero one zero zero one one that's you know and so it would just burn binary into the disk like <laughs> but um but but ultimately all, all these transistors are doing are storing storing elect, el- electrons um that represent data sets in a quantum computer quantum computers are using are taking advantage of quantum physics and quantum mechanics, right? Uh, and in quantum physics and quantum mechanics, you can have a, what's called a superposition. And a superposition is where something is not just could could be not just a zero or a one, right? But a zero and a one simultaneously, right? So you're okay. you're exponentially increasing your computing power by being able to represent a whole new state and then leverage the uncertainty of what state that piece of data is in to extract additional uh, power. And so this is like uh, particles, right? You know, so you, you have a uh, you know left spinning particle or a right spinning particle. Well, you know there's also a scenario where the particle is spinning both left and right simultaneously, right? And and this is you know why quantum physics is so confusing because you remember sh- you know Schrodinger's cat, the thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat. You open the box, you know, is, is the cat dead or alive? Well, you know, in the Copenhagen interpretation, the cat is both dead and alive until observed, type of thing. So it's like there's all these okay. strange features of quantum physics like uh like the uncertainty principle but also um entanglement where uh, which einstein called spooky action at a distance and he was like this can't be <laughs> that's what einstein called he called really? spooky action at a distance because it, it 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 appears to violate the speed of light barrier because you can yeah. transfer information faster than the speed of light um through integrity but uh, that which is a misnomer, but but anyway, well, that's that's maybe another episode. But the uh, so quantum computing takes advantage of these really funky realities uh, in nature at the quantum level, uh, okay. and it, it it allows us to perform computing functions that are far beyond anything we can even imagine today, right? So you know how like people are like blockchain and wow. Bitcoin, right? Yeah. So like blockchains are really secure because you can't really crack one part of the blockchain without breaking the whole chain. A quantum computer uh, at, at at some point, um, the, the technology behind they can't do it today. They're very rudimentary today. But at some point, quantum computers will probably be able to just crack blockchains without batting an eye. Really? What's yeah. uh? What are some good books about quantum computing or or resources to learn more about that? Um, actually, Microsoft. Uh, so all the major computing companies are doing research in this. Microsoft, IBM. Okay. Uh, have big quantum computing programs. You know, all, all the all these folks are, are investing in quantum computing. Honeywell right now. You know, Honeywell. Um, they may make yeah. your thermostat, for example. They right. actually they actually currently have I, the world, certainly the countries, but possibly the world's most powerful quantum computer, uh, Honeywell. Um, really? Why yeah. is that? They're trying to link everything together or something. <clears throat> Honeywell has has long been a pretty diversified business. 
and, and they're just leaning into new areas of their business now with this computing thing. But um, Microsoft's partnered with them. They're smoking IBM. They Google is way behind actually on the well. They'd argue they'd, they'd say they're uh, they would debate that, but but I think Google's actually they were in front and now they're behind. They got they got uh, uh, they got content and and lazy. But uh, IBM has some good machines. Honeywell has this this new machine that that you know kicks ass apparently. But the uh, you should look up. Uh, so the quantum quantum computers are have to operate in extremely low temperatures. So uh, the the device itself sits in what's called a dilution refrigerator, which kind of you know just lowers the temperature, um, you know down to like absolute zero or close to absolute zero. Uh, but these dilution refrigerators look really crazy. They're like these. They almost look like chandeliers. They look really cool. Really. Uh, yeah. Well, why does it need to? Why does it need to go down so cold? Just so that it doesn't heat up. That yeah. Well, if you get well, if you get heat, you get. Uh, any, yeah, it needs to be that low so you don't get any interference because these quantum states are extremely delicate, right? They'll just, you know, uh, you can get quant, you can get in, in, interference and the whole thing, you know, your error rates increase and the whole thing collapses very quickly. So, so like the the computing conditions are very very delicate. <laughs> oh my gosh, it does look like a shit. No, are you looking it up? Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Low. It, it actually it looks like the future too. You know what I mean? It's like a, it looks like uh, it looks like the future. It looks like people that would write about the future in the 19th century, like the time machine. It looks like something that, like in Victorian England, they would they would like create. Yes. But so right now there's a huge race in quantum computing because there's still no one right way to do it, right? Like Honeywell's using a what's, trapped so ion. So what's approach. an example of a visual example of what quantum computing can create? Well, really, it's like a it's so so like uh, I, I this is don't quote me on these numbers because these are I'd have to look it up. But uh, for example, like a quantum computer in like an hour can solve a mathematical problem that it would take a conventional computer like ten thousand years to do. So. So for or, the you know, average, something like that, right? I mean, it's just like the yeah. crazy order of magnitude superior, you know? Okay. So for the the average person, it's you're talking about like the technology. Once quantum computing happens, the technology will explode even quicker. Yes. Like okay. exponentially, like, like which yeah. then affects everything yeah. else in life yeah. and society. Yes. Wow. I, and we don't even know what we would do with that kind of computing power because right now we're like things are pretty fast. But imagine yeah. if like imagine if like you could you know call up every piece of information like out there in a millisecond. You know I, I don't know what you would do with that kind of capability. But you know that's the kind of stuff crazy stuff we're gonna be able to do. Like the things that seem fast today are gonna seem slow you know years from now with quantum computers like just asininely slow. Like people thought 56k was fast. You know. Yeah. They're like, wow, like when you went from 28K modems to 56K, people are like, <laughs> this is fast, right? Now that's, we think that's slow as heck, right? Like things will load and like with AI, things will preload, right? It'll like, like everything you do will be preloaded. You know, you, you think you're making the choice to go to this next page, but it's already there. You know, you don't even have to like go and do it. It just, boom. Pages. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, so, you, you know, you start to get to a place where you can't even imagine what this is going to allow us to do on a practical basis. So then... If we're looking at that as part of the future, getting back to the idea of the future of learning and formal education, how do individuals prepare themselves for this? The right, so, so right, and, and the to point of this, take advantage, the, of right? It, I mean, the, the point of this was to say that like the things that will that will make like kids today successful, most parents don't even know about. 
right? Most educators don't even know about it. There's, you know, the vast majority of K through 12 educators out there have never heard of a quantum computer. Well, this so, is my first day. Well, I know about quants. I've heard of quantum mechanics and stuff right, like yeah, that. Yeah. But like, so, but, but it's like, you know, we need to start sensitizing people to technologies that are, you know, and maybe, maybe quantum computers don't work out. And by the time these kids grow up, there is no quantum computer. But, uh, you know, unless we start sensitizing them to just the general science behind these things or the general features and functions, they will be ill-equipped when they when they grow up and, and we actually have if we actually have this stuff, um, you know, because it is a different way of thinking. And uh, and you can start learning stuff practically like like all IBM and Microsoft have quantum computing kind of languages that they've rolled out now, like Kiskit and uh, Q sharp is Microsoft's Kiskit's is I, IBM's, I think. But but, you know, they have languages where you can go on and kind of like run quantum simulations um, artificially using their kind of uh, programming languages. So, you know, you, you can actually become a quantum developer, right? Like you can go to yeah. school now and there are, there are universities offering degrees in quantum development, right? You're not a software developer. You're a quantum developer. Wow. And uh, but but like it's mostly physics. You know what I mean? It's like yes, you got you got to know the code, but really it's physics. You know, you have to know the physics. It's like math and physics. And um, but like that's a yeah. I feel like most people today who are you know maybe in high school, for example, just aren't prepared for that kind of world. Wow. So like the point being, so education you- education is misprepared. Education prepares people for what we know already right now we yeah. need to prepare people for what's going to happen in the future and now that's harder but it's way more valuable if you can even come close to doing it right yeah uh-huh. like why are we teaching people outside of history which is like history for history's sake but like why are we teaching people like concepts that like have been proven we need to equip equip people to invent new concepts right and think about concepts that haven't been invented yet and things that haven't been invented yet or are going to be invented or maybe they'll invent them you know it's like everything is like oh yeah this is how it is today this is how it's it's always going to be science is science well that's bullshit right i mean like you know science we don't know what we don't know yeah we don't know what we don't know we need to prepare people for the world they don't know not the world we think we know Right. Like the, the entire apparatus of education, how we teach kids anything is backwards. We need to teach forward, not backward. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But but like, let me tell you, K through 12 educators are not well compensated. And therefore, we are not getting people who are even educators who are even equipped to do that, frankly. And that sounds horrible. I'm not bashing K through 12 educators. They are saints, but they're not the smartest, most, in, you know, they're not towering intellectuals. Right. That, that's why they're in K through 12 and not college. They have a different set of skills that are hugely valuable, right? I would like mm-hmm. to take most K through 12 educators, confine them to certain subjects, and then bring in college professors. Why don't Why don't we have college professors teach select high school classes? You know, it's like we just the, is, the problem is, is like there ever a mix or a you, integration? Yeah, or? You, well, it's usually they were usually if you're uh, you're you're a senior in high school or something, uh, you can go. Like I took three classes at Marquette my our senior year at. Uh, or my senior year at, in high school, which, you know, helped. Oh, and, yeah, you do. You do. Have yeah, a bit you, yeah. Yeah. You, you do that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I think part of the problem is that education itself has just become like a check the box. You know, most yeah. most college 
kids today come out, they graduate and aren't really well equipped for the workforce because college really isn't about equipping you for the workforce or equipping you to lead a better life. You know, it's just like, Hey, come here because you need this degree and go through the motions while you're here. You'll have these letters behind your name and then you'll be qualified for the job you want. The letters don't qualify you to do anything. Right. You know, and like people are like, well, what about MDs, doctors having MD behind your name? means that you've been trained to do specific things. It doesn't mean you're good at those things. Mm-hmm. There are shitty ass doctors out there. You know what I mean? And it's, so, <laughs> so it's like, like the, the education itself is, is meaningless in and of itself. Okay. Yeah. And I love education. <laughs> I know, yeah. You got how many, you got three degrees already. You're working on the fourth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot to, to chew on. Are there any good books you'd recommend? There's a, there, what's the book? There's a book that's very popular. You may have read it. I have not read it. Uh, it might be called education or something. I don't know. Bill Gates was, uh, was a big fan of it. Um, let me see if I can Is find it. Like creating innovators or something. Uh, Is it Tony Wagner? Mm-mm. Let me see if I can find this book. I can't, I, uh, if I think of it later, I'll factfulness. I have that. One. Educated. Educate. I haven't read this book, but everyone talks about it. It's called educated. Oh, is it uh, is Tar- it a memoir? Uh, it is a memoir, yes, by Tara Westover. Okay. Memoir. I started reading that, and then I had to give it back to the library because there was such a, a huge request uh, uh, behind me. Yeah, There's see, like yeah. 749 people behind I'm me. I'm telling you, this book is really popular, and I hate yeah. memoir. I just can't read memoirs, so it's just I've never gotten into it. But someone out there, please read it and let me know what it's about and what do you what you think of it. <laughs> um but I, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of a classicist, right? Like I, I believe in the classical version of education. You know, it's like, I picture, you know, Plato or Aristotle, like walking around like peripedantically, uh, with like <laughs> 10, with 10 students, like behind them as they observe things about the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm really old school in my education. That, that would be my dream job. Just like walking around, like calling out observations on the world as like 10 select students follow me around. It um, sounds like the way I live my life, minus the 10 students. It's just me, <laughs> randomly. I, I use a cane as I'm walking down the street. And I'm like, ah, yes, yes, that. Oh, wow. Look at look at the, the facade of that building. Wow. That really... It really tells you something about the mid 20th century. Oh, well, that's why I like and that's Rich. That's why I like antiquing, because when you go antiquing, it's like an intellectual game. You can like try to yeah. to, to discern and observe and identify things about the objects in an antique uh, antique store, uh, and it really tests like your knowledge of culture and history. You know. Oh, it really does. I um towards the end of last year, 2019, I I started going to estate sales. And I like that was like my favorite thing to do. Find some awesome stuff there. And they're like, oh, this person has a lot of taste. Uh, this I don't know. This, or you, this person. Or, or you find something that's like actually uh, expensive or like worth a lot, and they've underpriced it because they don't know what it is. Like I, I always like the like finding. I, I only can do it with books, but but I'm sure other people out there, you know, can do it with other things. Where you find like a knickknack, and you're like, it's at a garage sale for a buck, and it's worth yeah. like ten grand. You know. <laughs> I found this. Uh, I have right over here. I got this like second edition, second print of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Oh yeah, nice. Two dollars. Awesome. Whoa. Yeah. Did you did you look it up? How much could you sell that for? It's more than two dollars. Wait, is that a second edition? You said too bad it's not a first. That'd be valuable. Yeah. And then I got like a 
think it was like a six printing of Catcher in the Rye for $2. I gave that as a gift, actually, to someone that I know um, who collects Catcher in the Rye books. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a whole, like, uh, secondary market for Salinger out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a popular book. Yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> um, actually, the, the first editions of those are, are very coveted. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, the, uh, um, but yeah, so, you know, education is tough. It's, it's one of those things where I, I think your approach is the best. Be an autodidact, teach yourself whatever you want. But in order for people to do that, you know, they, they have to learn how to learn first. And, and that's what I think we need to focus on in, in like, especially early, uh, early education is, is, is teaching kids how to teach themselves, right? It's the whole fish, yeah. give a man a fish thing. So uh, that's where we need to focus our attention. The same thing in college. College, we can't just like shove knowledge down, down people's throats. Uh, we need to kind of teach them how to think as professionals in the workforce, yeah. right? Or out there in the world, you know, how do you think and act and, uh, and adapt and add value to society and to the economy? Um, and, and, a very small part of that is knowledge, right? Most of it is yeah. is not related to content at all, um, mm-hmm. and we don't teach that you know those other skills enough. And some of those are soft skills, but some of those are also yeah, yeah. People call them soft skills, and I don't like that term because they have hard outcomes, you know. Oh. Uh, yeah. If you you know, it's like if you or they're not and, as equal. Yeah. Like you say well, it, soft, it's like, oh, something you don't need to spend a lot of time right. developing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If if you um botch every job interview because, you know, what's the what's the, like kind of an extreme scenario? You know, you just you end every sentence by like saying something lewd, right? Or whatever, right? Yeah. This is not a good example, but uh, and then you can't get a job. Uh, well, that's a hard outcome. <laughs> a lot of a lot of stuff you have to do in life is collaborative in nature and you need to be able to work with other people understand where they're coming from and um, what their personalities are like and how you can best reach them what their strengths are and applying them and putting them in position where they can provide the most value to whatever you're working on you know it's there's uh there's knowledge and then there's everything else too yeah exactly so and and like you know there's so much to learn right like you know when you get into like you know, some people like the stuff we've been talking about, like computing and those sorts of things. And, you know, it's like and there's history to all this stuff, too, like, you know, going from vacuum tube computers to transistors to integrated circuits, which, you know, are circuits with, you know, kind of many, many transistors. And the uh, you know, there's history to everything. Um, and uh, but there's so many fields, you know, it's like whether yeah. it's, you know culinary so, science i mean that's a whole you know it's just like so then people, you have to go into whatever you're most curious about and interested in yeah right that's right because i mean people are like well i like cooking well yeah but there's there's also a, like a lot of rich knowledge to cooking right like yeah. food science and ingredients and agriculture right and right. and supply chain and the economics of food uh you know the history of food food is culture you know so a- anything any, any subject just has a host of different things you can master uh, about it that that make that make it really exciting so so uh, focus on learning how to learn learning how to learn that's that's the bottom line and if you know how to learn um you know you will be adaptable and flexible and anti-fragile and and really and at peace with yourself you'll be a unified self that uh, can find fulfillment uh, look there, there's a lot of people right now that are having a problem kind of finding meaning 
uh, in these times of isolation. Yeah. But the the person who knows how to learn is also through that process undoubtedly cultivated uh, an interior sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. Where they can um, be at peace with just being with themselves in their own heads. Yeah. Uh, and 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 find fulfillment there. Um, that's not to say they they don't find fulfillment socially, right? But you know that those types of skills right now, I mean, that type of state of being right now certainly comes in handy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't I don't know what we talked about, but it was a good time. Blacked out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Remington at Remington Tonar. Have an inspiring day filled with learning and joy.